0: Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Noah Gould, Acton's Alumni and Student Programs Manager and Contributing Editor here at the Acton Institute, Emily Zanati, And this week, we're joined by a special guest, Christine Rosen. Christine is a Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on American history, society and culture, technology and culture, and feminism. She's also a columnist for Commentary Magazine and one of the co-hosts of the Commentary Magazine podcast. She is also the author of the essay, The Death of Conservatism is Greatly Exaggerated, which appears in the summer issue of our magazine, Religion and Liberty, which is available now in print and as of today, available online at acton.org. This week, we will be discussing Mark Tushnet's desire for Joe Biden to become a dictator and the movie Oppenheimer and whether it was the right thing to do to drop the atomic bomb. But first we are going to start with Christine's essay, which is uh, fantastic. And Christine, I just want to open it up for you. Just kind of give us an overview of, uh, of the essay, um, the inspiration for writing the essay as uh, you, you start off in the introduction talking about this piece that appeared at Compact Magazine. Uh, there have been plenty of these pieces that have declared the uh, death of conservatism in one way, shape, or form. Um, so uh, give us a little bit of the background uh, on the piece and and your thoughts on it, and we'll start there.
1: Thanks. Um, really glad to be here. It actually started, for, for any of you writers out there, I, I think you can sympathize. It started because I was just really annoyed. So in my, the the way I do things is that if if something just continues to annoy me, then I know I actually have to write about it to get it out of my system. And in this case, uh, the annoyance was this piece by John Asconas, whose work I I should, the caveat I give to this is that he's written a lot. He's written for The New Atlantis, where I'm also an editor. Like I, I like his work a lot. So I'm not taking any sort of Uh, pot shots at John. I think he does a lot of great work, but he wrote a a pretty uh, short and breezy uh, declaration that conservatism uh, was dead, that we'd lost all the battles, the most important battle being uh, our approach to and dealing with the cultural, political, and social impacts of technology. And this just bothered me. This bothered me because A, it's not true. Uh, B, there have been a lot of, there's a rich political history of how conservatives have dealt with change, uh, what reform means from a conservative view versus revolution. And what he was ultimately trying to do is make an argument that conservatism should become revolutionary because all of the things we've that have come before haven't succeeded, haven't met the political and social goals that he and, and others, uh, certainly in the compact magazine space and elsewhere, argue conservatism should be. Um, so I just started from that point. I went back, I reread my Russell Kirk, reread some Edmund Burke, just, just kind of thought a lot about what it means to be a conservative in a rapidly changing world where technological change in particular upends those deeply rooted communal norms, um, the structure of institutions like the family, education, our politics. Um, and if there is if, if I could make a reasonable argument for why conservatism is still a better approach to rapid change rather than what I think Esconas and others are arguing, uh, revolutionary upheaval and the installation of a conservative approved um, top down uh, power that will uh, re-engineer norms versus uh, encouraging the community uh, organically developed norms that I think conservatism should stand for.
0: One of the things I really like in your piece, Christine, is you get to what is um uh, and i'm I'm not much of a writer, so when I have something that annoys me, I can only sit behind this microphone and uh, or just subject all the people who work with me here at the Acton Institute <laughs> to uh, my my rantings and ravings about it. but you you get to one of the things that annoys me, which uh, particularly about the the point of view of this new right, which is a lot of it, to me also, you know, being overly online appears to be uh, buoyed by people who are very young and do not seem to understand that all of these ideas have been had before, that we have had all of these arguments before, which is not to say that there's never a merit to revisiting a lot of those arguments. A lot of them are prudential. They are not settled dogma in in that kind of a way. But we, we do get these revisitings of them over time, but at least should come with the acknowledgement that these ideas and a lot of these questions that are being raised are old. And one of the things that I wrote in the margin here and in, in copy of the magazine is your essay Uh was One of the paragraphs that begins elaborating on this claim, Asconis argues that uh, modernity liquidates tradition for the same reason that a firm might liquidate an underperforming factory to improve the allegation and return of capital. This is an intentionally limited definition of tradition, one that purports to measure the usefulness of tradition as akin to a commodity that should be replaced when it becomes inefficient. Asconus also blames conservatism for too readily acquiescing to technological change. And it reminded me of uh, one of the names you did. Didn't invoke in the piece, but it reminded me of Irving Kristol's Two Cheers for Capitalism. Um, you know, the, the idea that thinkers within our space have not, uh, have not objected to the full libertarian argument in favor of markets to express some skepticism of them is just not new, but we're all being asked to pretend like no one's had these ideas before and we're looking at everything with fresh eyes.
1: No, that, that's absolutely right. And thank you for the shot. The crystal uh, essay is something everyone should read, young or old. Yes. Wonderful piece. And there is what what's frustrating about a lot of this, I think, is that I, I share with John and others on the new right a concern about where the cultural uh, movement is headed right now. Right. I mean, conservatives have always been the people standing there going, let's let's have change, but let's make it slow and gradual. Whereas especially uh, uh, revolutionary style movements uh, fueled by uh, youthful enthusiasm are like burn it all down. So I, I share their concern that we don't have a response. Look, we use words like prudence and virtue. I think those are important things to maintain in our culture. That's not what you're going to see on TikTok, right? This is not. This is this is a very different uh, message uh, at a time when the only medium that matters is instantaneous and um, alarmist and uh, works to stoke fear, anxiety, and anger. Um, Um, So I do I do share their concern about that. But the answer isn't to construct a straw man called conservative capital T tradition and then chop it all down. Um, He does. He he engages this libertarian argument, but he doesn't engage the conservative argument. Libertarianism and conservatism are two different traditions with strengths and weaknesses. And all of us kind of live under the same tent, but we're always squabbling. I squabble with my libertarian colleagues all the time. It's often a very fruitful and productive discussion. But conservatives care about traditions, plural. And this is a distinction I think it's really important to emphasize. Traditions come in many shapes and forms. They are rooted in geography. They are rooted in generational change. They are rooted in family structure. And not all traditions are good. We have to be able to acknowledge that some things are uh, regressive or repressive, and we have to find new ways of doing things. Conservatives don't just stand there and say no to everything new, but we do try to assess the new things with our virtues and values in mind. And that's where the new right departs from conservatism, in my opinion. What they want to do is just get rid of everything, clean slate, and build something new that often, in my opinion, uh, is more interested in the pursuit of power than it is in in any sort of conservative traditionalism.
2: Eric is going to talk Irving crystal, but I was gonna say um Louis C.K. almost the same. Everything is amazing and nobody's happy. And so we have this incredible technological. I mean, you talk about technopoly and you talk about other these sort of post-apocalyptic visions of what the future looks like, but we really do live in an incredible pluralistic society where first uh, where the markets and free markets are changing the way people think about poverty. If you just look at India in the last twenty years, thirty percent of the population has come out of poverty because of liberalizing those markets. So it's really interesting to me that you bring that up. That really, it's amazing, and nobody's happy.
1: <laughs> well, that the anxiety. I think you're absolutely right, Emily, to identify that cultural anxiety because it is, it should be contradictory. But this is actually another area in which I think old-fashioned conservatism, for want of a better phrase, uh, speaks to that more than the what the new right is is suggesting it's going to build because you cannot get happiness uh, from power, uh, despite what you know many dictators believe on their rise. But you get them from being very carefully and, and firmly grounded in communities, in families, in, in institutions that actually help shape uh, your own behavior, help teach you how to be a better person. You get it from religious faith. You get it from many, many areas that actually are ungovernable by the standards that the new right, and, and I will say also the left in many cases, want to govern people's behavior by, which is top-down, often government-imposed power, sanctions, nudges, whatever you want to call them, you cannot, human human nature is such a wonderfully stubborn beast. And I think this is part of what conservative philosophy has developed over time is some really great humility about that fact. And when you start to think that you can alter human nature with policies, with revolutions, with all kinds of other things, you start to learn some really rough lessons. And I think the job of conservatives is to remind people about that fact.
0: I want to get Noah in here, but uh, I want to make a point, especially as someone who came out of a libertarian movement and still has a lot of libertarian inclinations. One of my frustrations with the Ascona's piece is that – and with a lot of these new right thinkers, I need to go back to the point you were saying about squabbling with your libertarian friends, right? You know, like – go find a room of 10 libertarians and you'll have 15 different opinions anyway. So like they can squabble plenty amongst themselves. Uh, but one of the lines that you pull out of the, uh, the Ascona's piece that stuck out to me In between great book seminars, conservatives have decried any interference in what technologies the all-knowing market chooses to build while taking no stance on what technologies we ought to build, which is on one hand a perfectly reasonable conservative argument. But my frustration with it is that it depersonalizes and dehumanizes what markets are, is to make them this kind of – thing that just exists outside of the actions of human beings where i want to bring in the back the fundamental like friedmanite argument about the market i believe the quote from friedman was that you know one of the fundamental objections is that it gives people what they want rather than what other people think they ought to want there's a perfectly reasonable argument to make that sometimes the things that people want aren't great but What I read from the SCOTUS here is almost like take it out of any understanding that these are markets are based on the individual interactions of millions of different people. And to just think that it's this kind of thing that we can control as if there are switches and levers and ways to manipulate that. And I, I find that kind of thing very, very frustrating.
3: One thing I found really refreshing about this essay is kind of bringing it back to a Kirkian understanding of conservatism, right? And I think, uh, Christine, one thing that really divides uh, you from Esconis is a kind of an understanding about what conservatism is. And he seems to want an ideology, like a a five-step process to be able to just, okay, if I do five things, I can have regime change and I can get this. Uh, You quote another writer, uh, John Daniel Davidson, in the piece, which is just a a great quote. I'll read it briefly. Uh, He says, the government will have to become in the hands of the conservatives an instrument of renewal in American life, and in some cases, a blunt instrument indeed. And you say, as for who will wield that power and how they will do so fairly, David says such questions can be answered, quote, after we have won the war. So he doesn't really have a sense of what's next after winning. I mean, I would want to ask him, what does winning mean uh, for him? But I mean, a political philosophy needs to answer the question of what do you do once you have power? And there's there's no answer for that in this. And so I love how you bring it back to uh, Russell Kirk, who Really saw conservatism not as an ideology, not as a five-step plan to roll out, but as you know, an, an outlook on life, a set of governing principles. It was kind of a um, a way of looking at the world that was helpful, but it didn't provide kind of a uh, a political program to roll out. So I
1: love that about
3: about what you wrote here.
1: No, thank you. That I mean, conservative. Conservatives should have a real allergy to that kind Mm -hmm. of revolutionary ideological zeal. Um, Edmund Burke had it about the French Revolution. We should, Mm -hmm. we had it when we saw the, you know, the summer of Black Lives Matter tearing down statues of our founders and you know burning burning cities and and stuff like that. That that should get the reaction of, wait a minute. Now that's not to say I think where conservatives sometimes go astray is when they say, oh, well, it's fine. There's nothing to see here. Like I don't know why they're all upset. No, you have to look at the legitimate, look at the claim, see what's legitimate about it. And then you talk about how do we make change happen. So I mean the the toppling of statues, for example, which really bothered me both as an American and as a historian there are ways to take symbols that have that no longer have cultural resonance and meaning for for Americans and to decide in a democratic fashion as a community that we don't need that in the center of our town square anymore. They did it with the uh, Confederate flag in South Carolina when Nikki Haley was governor. They've done it with other in the South. I'm, I'm from Florida, which is kind of the weird South as we call it. But, you know, I, I spent, I also lived in Georgia for a while. You can do that. Communities can come together and say, okay, we're going to have a discussion about this. We're going to bring in experts, historians. We're going to decide what to do. And then you make, that is the conservative approach to change. And honestly, I think it, it's a kind of common sensical way of keeping order in a in a nation that's incredibly diverse incredibly large geographically spread out whose whose uh, compelling um central conversation used to be about you know culture patriotism civics but even that has broken down and fractured so that's part of my concern with Asconis and others on the new right who say well let's just burn it all down and we'll build something new and don't bother us about the details it's uh, it's kind of a trust us uh trust us authoritarianism, if you will. It's like, don't worry, trust us. We'll pick a good guy. We'll put him in there. He'll do the right things. We'll have all the best people. This is not necessarily something that historically has ever worked out. And and I'll point out that one of the things that Ascona says um, people should be is more like, you know, kind of guerrilla fighters. Like we shouldn't be like sitting on our farms, tending to our local communities as conservatives. We should be out there on the ramparts fighting guerrilla warfare against the so-called regime. Well, guerrilla warfare has very few rules and so if you're talking about a conservative philosophy it's very difficult to square that with a with a an approach to change that says you know again trust us which i don't um con- conser- trust but verify is always my philosophy and second that doesn't seem to have a a sense of um tolerance for anyone who might disagree on some of the principles and we have to have we have to start from tolerance and have the debate it doesn't mean you're always going to win or that you're right but it begins by saying we can always have that discussion without violence without turning our enemies into some sort of um other person we'll never speak to or have contempt for that's what democracy and that's what conservatism is supposed to be about
0: well this gets to the question too of what is our politics for right so you know d- as listeners will know, this is where you get to check off the Yuval Levin square on your uh, act and unwind bingo card. But you know, th- there's an is-ought distinction now. Would you could describe. I carry one of
1: those in my wallet, so it's very exactly.
0: Good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's an is odd distinction between how our politics is functioning now and then what it is supposed to be for. And what Escona describes and what a lot of these people, the new right describe to me is politics as a substitute for actual, you know, physical fighting or some kind of war. Uh, Whereas what I get from Levin is, you know, this is supposed to be a methodology through which we reach accommodations amongst people with, Plenty of different desires in terms of how they want to live in a nation of 330 million people. Now, I don't know that anybody is going to disagree that that is not the way our politics is functioning right now. And one needs to grapple with that reality. But to say, you know, to kind of embrace the dysfunction of it and say, well, this is just the new normal. This has always been my frustration with this kind of, these are the new rules arguments of the way that we're supposed to approach this stuff is to say, we think all of this is bad, but these are the rules. So I guess we're going to have to play by them. It's the same mentality that, um, you know, as I'm sure Emily, you will remember as well from uh, when our days in Chicago, especially when the, the tea party was growing and everybody all of a sudden discovered Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals and ignored the fact that the dedication in the book is to Lucifer. And then they're all like, hey, maybe we should do the things that this guy recommends. No, no, you should not. You should not uh, become what you are beholding and what you're trying to reject. You should embrace the proper understanding of our politics, not this new methodology that I I think is a a deep, deep problem.
2: Or that Saul Alinsky's ideas ultimately didn't take root. I think that's probably the, the biggest problem is those are great ideas, but they also involve working.
1: Right. Well, this is important because uh, Emily's put her finger on another thing that's the problem with the new right. Um, they're full of problems. But one of them is that they're all about the theory and the abstract, and they really don't want to talk about the practice. And this yeah, is and where- as a homesteader, so,
2: yes. I can officially tell you this because a lot of this traditionalism and sort of this cosplay of homesteading and traditionalism that you see on the new right, it doesn't really get into the fact that you can't wear a very pretty dress out to clean your chicken coop. I mean, it, thank you. Work, yes, thank you. <laughs> needs to go into the not just into the political aspect of it, but if you're if you're idealizing this sort of rural. Christianist lifestyle then then you actually have to understand what the basic nitty-gritty that's going to get you there actually involves and it's not simply sitting in your chair and thinking and uh, ironically podcasting right
1: <laughs> It's also it's also got a particular role for women. And so if you're a woman and you consider yourself conservative, um, there's not like, I'm sorry, I'm not doing the Laura Ingalls Wilder Prairie thing that they're doing. I I live in a city, I, you know, I do lots of things that would not fit that norm. And there are a lot of conservative women who also don't want to fit that norm. That's actually, there's an example where change has occurred. This is good change. It's good that women have more options. Um, Yeah, we don't need to go cleaning out chicken coops and dresses.
2: I still do, but I also live in a city and I also work for Acton. And, uh, you know, it's, it's this great mentality that we have these choices and we have vocations. Speaking of virtue, we have vocations that we can follow. And if we're women and we want to be a voice for change and work for change, we have the opportunity and the ability. And, you know, Catholics will say that we need women's voices, the dignity and and um, necessity of the female gender, um, which has kind of become cut out completely on the new right.
3: And this underlines one thing that seems to be new in some of the um, kind of new conservatives' ideas. Is you we've had people for a long time, people like you know the Wendell Berry types, who are arguing for a different type of conservatism, and they're more skeptical of markets. But they are at least uh, attempting to live some sort of communal life or model what they're arguing for, there seems to just be a total lack of an attempt to model the, the type of ideal
1: that uh, the new right wants. Yes, and there that's it's an important point because, like the front front porch republic folk, mm-hmm. there are a lot of there are a lot of small um, communities on um, that would be considered broadly on the right. that that develop their own, you know, sort of uh, virtue-based approach to life, and they live their values. And living one's values is a very important thing. Um, One of the reasons I I cite in the piece a couple of times Roger Scruton, um, he lived his values as well. This guy had a working farm, but he was also extremely clear-eyed about what modernity demanded for that farm to succeed and for his neighbor's farms to succeed and for the community in which he and his family lived and thrived, could succeed and survive without compromising their values, but with a recognition that there is a global marketplace now. We have to we have to appeal to people to come and understand what farm life is like, even as we're not going to be you know sitting there pretending to churn butter every day. So there, that kind of clear eyed, um, consciously uh, uh, consistent conservatism is what's missing on the new right, and they talk a big big game. And, you know, every time I hear someone start talking about regimes, I roll my eyes now. That should be on the bingo card, too. (laughs) But they they are again, they're 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 upset and they're right. They're correct to be upset. But I think the path they're heading down is is not one that's going to be good for the country or good for conservatism.
0: Well, let's. Uh, talk a little bit about you know, we were talking about theory uh, and and the philosophy part of it and I, I want to talk a little bit about that before we move on and, and discuss the technology portion of this and then we'll move on to our other topics um, but what, there's something that's interesting too amongst this new right phenomenon of it, it, some of the people they're choosing to embrace from a philosophy standpoint is kind of fascinating and I'm going to pull out again another piece from Esconis that you write about here Uh, Ultimately, Esconis' frustration with conservatism is about power, not capital T tradition. Quote, before we recover a human way of thinking, we may first need to address a more practical question first posed by Nietzsche. Okay, there's our first problem. Uh, Asconis writes, who deserves to be the masters of the earth? Corporations, the Chinese Communist Party, the National Institute of Health, the Department of Defense— or human beings living according to their natures. And I think the question that I wrote in the margin there was are these my only options?
1: Yes, exactly. Yes, so this is this is the problem with this approach. The conservative response to that is none of the above. Conservatives believe that if you if you are living your values as a conservative You can self-govern to an extent that while you still need some some form of political system that operates and functions in a way that gives people a vote, that allows for sort of large scale, certainly defense policies to be formed and those sorts of things, a post office, which is the only thing some of my libertarian friends think the government should be doing. But you need those. And so when your starting point is we have to have a, a, a big power in charge telling everybody how to live, they're just the mirror image of exactly what's being attacked. And that's this idea that you still need a strong man or a strong governmental force, uh, uh, some sort of bureaucracy that will impose on others what what one small ideological slip of the population believes to be best for them. So that, that really annoyed me because the conservative answer to that is none of the above. We don't need any of those things if we're a healthy society functioning as the founders of this country believed we should and as healthy thriving communities.
0: Where do you think that this kind of lust for power and wielding power on the right has come from? In in my... It's frustration. It, I'll, I'll just let you unpack that. But like, you know, fru- it, what's the frustration? Maybe this is the dovetail into the technology conversation. But um, what, what is, I mean, to a certain extent, and I I mean this with all sense of love and as somebody who there's a definition of conservatism that I absolutely subscribe to, but like, Conservatism in part way is being frustrated with a whole lot of things, you know, like the, the insight, the scrutiny insight in there that it is um, very hard to build good things and very easy to destroy them. And there's a lot of zeal out there for destroying good things in a uh, ignoring Chesterton's fence kind of way. Uh, I, I just kind of found that to be always packaged into uh, an understanding of conservatism. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to frustrate us, but it's it's processing how you deal with them. So wh- what has it been about this moment to you that has taken the frustration that I think always has existed as part of the conservative tradition with modernity uh, and has turned it into this kind of desire to become right wing Jacobins?
1: No, it's a it's a great question. I think the 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 healthy frustration anyone of a conservative temperament has when when they're living in the modern world is is that's our burden to bear, right? So what what I think is driving this this zeal for more uh, the pursuit of power, not power to try to do good, not to be, you know, not to sort of elect the people to Congress that could pass legislation that supports families or supports, you know, American businesses or all the sort of traditional sort of before the GOP lost its mind, Republican policies that that used to be uh, no one would argue about that, I mean, except politically. I think the concern here is that a lot of the the forces that aren't government, the cultural institutions, the educational institutions, and even to some extent, the family have been either co-opted or coerced into embracing um a message that is ascendant on the left about that, that no longer thinks about community. It thinks only of the kind of radical individualism. It no longer even acknowledges that men and women are biologically different. I'm, I, you know, look, I have kids. I'm not supposed to call myself a mother because that would be offensive. I am, you know, I am a chest feeder or any of the other like Orwellian euphemism. I'm a birthing person. Thank you. That's right. And we won't even go into the other anatomical rewrites they're trying to do. This is an effort to to make the individual ascendant and there's always been a tension in the United States with with the individual versus the community the the uh, who is the patriot in a nation that's so uh, diverse these actually are our strength constantly renegotiating those relationships but i think What the new right fears is that all of the alternatives that conservatives had to sort of live their lives freely without being oppressed by the ideas of anyone they disagreed with, to just be let alone, don't tread on me, as the flag says, (laughs) that has disappeared. And I think they are not incorrect uh, to some extent in their critique, particularly of government institutions and their impact, educational institutions and their impact. Conservatives have been complaining about the campus, for example, since the 1990s, but it hasn't gotten better. It's actually gotten worse. And a lot of the weird insular, uh, elite campus politics have now trickled down into the rest of society and into culture. So I think there's a there's a fear that we cannot reclaim those institutions. We cannot reclaim that cultural space. So we have to just come in strong on the politics and re- remake them in our own image. I think they're wrong, but the critique I, I have a lot of sympathy for, and particularly given the way that um, uh, technology spreads information and how people understand both the present and how little they understand the past. That's, a seri- it's a serious concern
0: one of the one of the questions i would want to ask then is how much of that field especially academia but i think there's others you know that the, the teaching profession in general um the arts to a great extent these are just areas that conservatives seem to have just willingly ceded. Um, there aren't a whole lot of people who believe the kind of things that we do, who decide to go into teaching. There are some, I don't mean to mean there aren't any, um, but you know, there is a, an orientation and a mindset Uh, That draws one to get a degree in education that thinks I'm going to change the world through doing this rather than having a more proper understanding of what the role in that that job is. I think, you know, as as someone who helped produce a documentary film the last couple of years, I've been telling people at different workshops that I've gone to, I would love to see more conservative art, uh, more conservative films. Um, but the problem is is that the, uh, the understanding of how to do it in a good way is lacking. And I always go back to this example that I can't remember how long ago it was, but there was this film done by the Zucker Brothers, the same guys that did Airplane, uh, called An American Carol, where Chris Farley's brother plays a Michael Moore-type character who is visited by the ghosts of America, past, present, and future, and is turned into a great patriot through all of it. And it is so beating you over the head with a sledgehammer so to give you the message. And I always contrast this with uh, my contention that one of the most pro-life films I can remember of the last you know, 10, 15 years is Arrival. Uh, which I don't think for a moment had an intention of making a pro-life point. I think they just thought it was a good story. And you can enjoy it on a surface level without thinking deeply about that. But there's a deeply pro-life point in that movie. And it does a great job of communicating that viewpoint Again, without beating you over the head with a sledgehammer to make you get the message. So I, before we start having these conversations about, you know, seizing the levers of power and rewarding our friends and punishing our enemies, perhaps we could try just engaging in some of these areas that we think are lost and trying to reclaim them and, and not just ceding them to people that we disagree with.
1: So th- this is this is a this is an important point. And an important cultural moment for that discussion, because I think one of the, uh, you know, in the last 10 years, one of the paths that a lot of conservatives took was to create their own channels, create their own places where they could do just that. And it was a it was an absolutely necessary response to a to cultural institutions that didn't just not listen to conservative ideas, but actively shunned them. Uh, did their best to shut them down, and I mean, we all know this, right? You can every every other week I see an announcement of a new book by a liberal writer that's that's like, oh, this is this astonishing counterintuitive argument about you know broken windows policing works, and I'm like, God, it <laughs> gets so bad. I'm like, yes, we've been saying this for thirty years. So the the conservatives will will have to reconcile the fact with the fact that it it will take some of these cultural institutions a long time to catch on to the practical wisdom of much of conservatism. It can happen. Now but this is actually where I think technology has made some interesting inroads. Social media has has uh, instantaneously created a level of transparency with a lot of media institutions on the left with a lot of all the mainstream stuff has been shown over time not to be so mainstream and people have reacted. Now the danger I think in creating one's own channels is that to keep to keep your viewers happy, active and loyally involved with with what you're producing you tend to have to keep upping your game, right? The the, the rhetoric becomes uh, even more hyperbolic. The claim's a little bit harder to prove. And so I think I would argue we actually need both. We need al- alternative cult- uh, cultural institutions where conservatives can do their thing, but we have to continue to train new generations of kids to understand that there's no reason they can't go right for the New York Times, and they should if they're a good reporter. And hopefully along the way, we will get more people involved in institutions and change them from within. And this is where I think the new right has no tolerance with that. That is a multi-generational enterprise. It takes a long time. It takes persistence. It actually, again, it takes a lot of tolerance on the part of someone who's from a conservative uh, who has a conservative worldview to exist in these institutions sometimes. So it's it's not an easy challenge, but it's worth doing. Again, if you want a pluralistic democracy to thrive, you have to have people who have different views able to work and build towards a common goal in, in institutions.
3: Yeah, Christine, I agree with this kind of both end of creating alternatives and also kind of engaging with the mainstream of culture. I was kind of raised on a lot of these alternative, you know, the alternative to Hollywood movies and that kind of thing. Uh, So I've uh, experienced a lot of it and a lot of it is honestly just bad art Uh, and I think Part of the problem maybe is not that there isn't conservative art out there but that we've kind of misdefined what that is. Kind of through the culture wars, a lot of conservative or what was considered conservative art was just art with nothing objectionable in it. So good art was art with nothing bad in it, Um, which I would want to kind of redefine. A conservative film is something that says something about uh, human nature in a universal way. Something that we can learn from and so I think that there's an engagement with culture where we can call back, no, this is just what good art is. Good art is something that that persists over time, that says something universal and that I think can change the conversation about what we're even talking about with culture.
1: This is a great point because that so the Arrival movie that you mentioned earlier, that that was actually based on a science fiction story written by a guy who's pretty liberal, like he writes for The New Yorker. And, you know, his I completely disagree with his politics, but he's a fantastic writer. And this is actually where this is one battle where I think conservatives really do need to be continuing a sustained effort to maintain. And that's the Western tradition philosophy, art, music, literature, the things that are now considered inappropriate to teach kids or too narrow, narrowly focused. No, not at all. These remained uh, core parts of our understanding of what it means to be civilized people for centuries for a reason. And they should continue to be taught. You can teach them with a critical eye. It's not to say you're going to just force feed kids Western civ and expect them never to challenge or question. Not at all. But that's I think it's important because that's, you know, when I think about some of the the efforts um, largely fueled by the left, to reimagine museums and put all these didactic, scolding captions on every painting about the patriarchy. And she wouldn't have sat there for that portrait to be made of her if she wasn't a, you know, that Vermeer, what a patriarchal oppressor. And you just, you're not understanding what either what the artist was potentially trying to capture about humanity or what you as a human being staring at this beautiful work of art should experience, which is awe, respect, like just just an acknowledgement that some human beings are extraordinarily talented and we should acknowledge that talent and be grateful for it it when it's something that can be shared with the rest of us. And so there's a sort of, I have a Harrison Bergeron uh, uh, alert in my brain that goes off whenever I hear, uh, whenever I hear someone or see someone trying to take down a peg or two, truly remarkable human talent, because we should all appreciate that regardless of our politics.
2: There's also a lack of sort of this critical eye too on this new right. It's like, I'm going to dismiss everything prior to a certain time and everything past 1950 in the art world. None of this is good. Well, if you don't, actually approach that with a critical eye then you can't come to modern art you can't create art you can't do better um, because you're not embracing that sort of intellectual approach to art and then that becomes a problem when you get into the movies and you get into so-called conservative art right there's no criticism um if you're criticizing them then you must be a liberal you must hate artists you must be trying to knock conservative artists down a peg Um, But really, you know, the reason that good films get made and good art gets made is we have a critical eye and an intelligent eye to where it comes from and where it's been, and we apply that to new art. Um, But there's so much insular, uh, such an insular approach to some of this stuff where you cannot be a
1: critic. And that what that leads to is not art, but um, well, schlock, but also just imitative, bad imitations. And so my friend Matt Labash and I who grew up around the same time and both were force-fed like Christian rock music. We, we have these ongoing jokes about like, is Striper ever going to have a reunion concert and you know, a reunion uh, tour? But but that was just bad imitation, poor, cheap imitation. Um, and that is what you risk as a conservative culture getting into, because if you don't allow real genuine criticism, as Emily says, or you don't allow people to kind of embrace parts of our Western tradition that might not be you know, labeled or branded conservatism. You just get poor imitation. You get Striper. Sorry, Striper fans, but you get Striper.
0: And the thing that I love is that you can, outside of the realm of, of you know, modern Christian music, there are artists that you can point to that have those themes in their music who are good artists. Like, go back and listen to, you know, for the, the children of the 90s here, uh, Lives Throwing Copper, um, there are a lot of Christian references in that music, and, and uh, they got more explicit as the career of the band went on. And I would note that the music also got a little less great as they got more explicit as the career of the band went on. Or go listen to, to Mumford & Sons, which is infused with all kinds of references to Christianity, including, you know, when I first heard the single The Cave, my assumption, of course, was that it's a Plato reference. If you read through it, it's a Chesterton reference, um, which is just kind of remarkable that you had this song on the charts referencing something from G.K. Chesterton. That's fantastic. We should Embraced celebrate by Brooklyn
1: it. hipsters, yes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah.
0: exactly. And again, to draw back to movies, you know, we have an essay in this issue of the magazine from J.C. Scharl about, that we talked a couple weeks ago about, about the work of Cormac McCarthy. Um, Though Country for Old Men is a very conservative film, uh, again, not attempting to be didactically so. Uh, and we're going to get a little later here to talk about uh, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, or Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, I think is one of the most conservative movies ever made, and The Dark Knight Rises is just a retelling of the French Revolution. Like that is,
2: <laughs> it is as
0: explicitly Burkean as you can possibly get. But I do
2: have to say that Stryper, knowing who they were, did win me a trivia contest once, so I can't hate them forever or, you can't you know, totally
1: like, hate I can't, striper i
2: can't dismiss them out of hand because knowing who they were won me like a free mac and cheese or something <laughs> well
0: now <laughs> and now we can cross striper off of the bingo card as well let's move on to our second topic so th- this is a piece i'm I'm going to read from uh charles cook's corner post a national review Uh, About Harvard's Mark Tushnet wants Joe Biden to become a dictator. So lest we think that the people identified in Christine's essay who are lusting for power are the only ones doing it. No, they're absolutely not. From Charles Cook, uh, Mark Tushnet, the William Nelson Cromwell professor of law emeritus at Harvard Law School, a former president of the uh, Association of American Law Schools and the author of many of the books that America's law students use while in college has joined forces with a political science professor from San Francisco State University to write an open letter to President Biden, urging him to begin openly ignoring the Supreme Court. This is a quote from it. We urge President Biden to restrain MAGA justices immediately by announcing that if and when they issue rulings that are based on gravely mistaken interpretations of the Constitution that undermine our most fundamental commitments, the administration will be guided by its own constitutional interpretations. Uh, What is in the water at Harvard Law School? Because I read this and I'm seeing now this kind of mirror image thing of Mark Tushnet on one side and Adrian Vermeule on the other, both of whom their argument seems to distill down to just... People who agree with me should be the ones in power and anything that is a barrier to people agreeing with me having and wielding power is a problem and should just be done away with is my characterization here unfair at all.
1: No, no. This is this is an intellectual exercise and signaling device of uh the law professors who simply are embracing the idea of my truth, right? Remember, this is this took a my truth or lived experience, all these ways of caveating something that we know what it is. We know what we should know what truth is and falsehood is. We should know that experience means you know personal human experience. But there's a way in which um an effort to to undermine uh institutions that come out with rulings or laws that you don't agree with, uh, by saying actually that that they're undermining everything, this is this is an all or nothing thing. But it is the exact same impulse, and that impulse again, it's trust us, authoritarianism. Trust us, we know the guys who truly understand the Constitution. The whole point of the court and the history of the court is that it it's constantly had these swings from left to right, given who you know who is appointed, who how long they serve on the bench, who the chief is. So I mean, to Tushnet, I would say that I guess you want to get rid of a lot of the sort of progressive era uh, efforts by the court to to expand the reach of the federal government in order to, you know, for a lot of civil rights stuff there. I mean, it, why is it only now when we have a conservative majority on the court that suddenly their interpretation of the constitution cannot be trusted? Conser- Again, conservatives argued for a very long time, the Federalist Society itself was formed in part to combat the notion that the only proper interpretation of the constitution was the one coming from liberal justices. They were very successful. Mark Tushnet is, is you know, a little upset that, that they have had this success. So.
3: Yeah, and this is back to the idea of processes existing for a reason, right? Tushnet doesn't seem to have any kind of conception of what will happen after you destroy the Constitution, destroy rule of law, right? You're left with chaos. This is back to the French Revolution, a a theme of this episode, it seems, but this is a kind of conservative impulse to try to protect processes that have been put in place for a reason. And not just overturn them, but he really has no regard for this. This is kind of just when I first read this this is kind of an unserious take on the issue well
0: what I really like is in this story as a follow on to christine 's essay in in religion and liberty is. Uh, well, I'll, I'll read first here from Charles Cook's follow-up after that quote. Uh, I contend I contended recently that the left has no comprehensible judicial philosophy. This is a good example of that problem. There is no principle on display here, and there is no use pretending otherwise. Whereas if you look at what the right has been successful, and I, I think one of the biggest things that has uh, should be viewed as a discouragement and a rebuttal to the argue, a lot of the arguments being made by the new right people, is the Dobbs decision. Uh, The way that we got to the Dobbs decision Was through very conservative means, institution building around a judicial philosophy for the purpose of advancing people through that institution who would be lawyers and eventually judges who would rule again, not according to desired outcomes, but according to a philosophy of constitutional interpretation that has roots and that is explainable. And I think Charles is absolutely right here that there is no real principle at play and there is it is increasingly hard. Hard to describe the competing judicial philosophy of the left one of the best rebuttals to the new right argument has been the success of the conservative legal movement and uh and it was great that we got it at the same time that there are these new right figures who were pushing this you know common good constitutionalism which is just their own version of the living constitution which really was the underlying judicial philosophy of the left they just didn't want to acknowledge that really Let's move on, uh, because we're running a little bit long on these other topics, to uh, our final topic of the day, which is three of the four of us – sorry, Emily – uh, have seen Oppenheimer. If you could see the the toddlers that Emily is wrangling and apparently the yard work going on outside of her house, one can understand uh, why she didn't have time to do it. But three of the four of us have seen Oppenheimer. Um, I'll let uh, for the three of us who have, have seen it, uh, of course, without any spoilers for Emily, we wouldn't want to spoil
3: it. I
2: mean, I feel like there's no <laughs> need to worry about. Spoilers. Emily, something I big happens. It's yes. really That's big. how it ends. Yes. <laughs>
3: uh, uh, we won't tell you whether or not they really developed the bomb.
0: Yes, yes,
3: we wouldn't wouldn't want to
0: rob you of that experience. Uh, (laughs) Feel free um, uh, for Christine, uh, you and and Noah, you to to share thoughts about the film. But I uh, noticed on I was about to say on Twitter, uh, but on X, uh, because today is the official day of the rebranding of Twitter to X.
1: I refuse. I still call Meta Facebook, so I'm 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 not going to do it. Yes, yeah. sorry, like Elon Musk, the artist
2: formerly known as Twitter. I don't yes, know <laughs> uh, well, I
0: going back to Charles Cook. I appreciated his his joke this morning that uh, I look forward to all of the men explaining why there is a credit card charge for X Blue on their credit card statements, uh, but. There has been some renewed debate around, and this comes up every once in a while, and I, I think reasonably so, whether or not it was the right decision to drop the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, so I, I'll throw it open uh, there first to you, Christine, because since you've seen the film, and then for any thoughts on um, this reemergent debate, which again, I think is, is a good one that is worth having because there is, I think there is, personally, and I'll, I'll tease my hand here, I think there is an obvious answer to the question about dropping the bomb. But there are moral computations involved in that that I think are worth revisiting from time to time.
1: No, I I think that's right. And I think um, it's especially true at our cultural moment now where history is, is not understood for the lessons it can often teach us and is constantly uh, being rewritten efforts on, I think both the ideological left and the ideological right to rewrite histories. Pardon me as um, I
0: jump in real quick, because I, hmm. I did want to give one of those examples, which was from two years ago, but I think is just so perfect for this uh, from Nicole Hannah Jones uh, who wrote in response to a someone famous
1: not historian we should uh, <laughs>
0: and not journalist who is apparently paid know. not to write at the New York Times <laughs> now uh, you're the only one who poorly understands history they dropped the bomb when they knew surrender was coming because they'd spent all this money developing it and to prove uh, it was worth it propaganda is not history my friend which is just a fantastic yes. last line and I assume the birth of the 1940 <laughs> project as the next thing she's going to do no
1: i mean the like the bomb was the new coke like they just had to flood the market because they invested so much no it's ridiculous she is she is ridiculous um i do think the movie in particular is a little bit heavy-handed with the idea that oppenheimer was hemming and hawing about should they drop the bomb for dramatic effect and it works perfectly in the movie the historical record shows he did not have qualms about this. He's like, yes, we needed to do this. He was saying this for even decades after, after Trinity, that's then after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that's where, this is where the nuance and the, the moral um, relativism of our current debates cannot deal with the moral reality of what happens in war. If you look at what, you know, Japan was not going to surrender. They were not going to surrender after the first bomb was dropped. They were not going to surrender. There was, uh, there's been a, a deep forgetting in our society about those kinds of choices. Uh, a lot of the people who very confidently argue, oh, we could have done better. We should, didn't need to drop the bomb. They have never served their country. They have never seen combat. They have never known war. And they have very little curiosity or interest in studying the history of it. I would urge every single you know person on Twitter who thinks they're an amateur historian to tell, who can lecture previous generations and the difficult moral choices they make, pick up a book and read a history book. I get really, as you can tell, I get very annoyed in these debates because there is these were not easy decisions. And actually, Christopher Nolan does a really good job as a director showing some nuance there in a way that I think, again, there's a lot of conservative issues that come up in this film about moral choices, about ethical responsibility, about science and and government power. It's 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 a fascinating look and particularly coming at this moment after we've come out of a pandemic, after there's a lot of mistrust in many of our institutions, including now our scientists. It's useful for recalling um, those tensions are always there and how do individual men and women confront them. So for that, I, I really felt he, he overplayed the the, dile- the moral dilemma that Oppenheimer was supposedly having, but it, it did work as a, as a kind of dramatic effect in the movie.
2: And I think people sort of confuse the decision to drop the bomb at the time and the ramifications of dropping the bomb after it was dropped. So, you know, Oppenheimer looked back and at at what it caused, you know, the the nuclear arms race, the constant fear of everyone nuking each other and the you know, stop drop and run. and um he he saw that happen, which was the implications of developing nuclear weapons. But then you look back at the war at the time and Japan wasn't going to surrender. Heck, when when they were driving to take the unconditional surrender, the soldiers were still waiting for the moment that the world was going to change his mind. And so it's an odd thing to see people sort of separate or odd thing people sort of confound those two, not really separate it, but. You know, we we minted 1.5 million Purple Hearts at the time because we thought that we were going to be fighting, putting men into a meat grinder for at least five more years. Some of them had come from the European theater and they were fighting inch by inch on these islands that they didn't know that the Japanese soldiers had grown up with. Um, And that the Japanese citizenry had been basically deputized to be its own military. So they were told that if you die as a consequence of starvation, because we're feeding the troops instead of you, that's an honorable and noble death. And you may die in service of saving the Japanese empire. But again, that's an honorable and noble death. And so there was they just it's hard to grasp the mentality of a Japan prior to the Marshall Plan, because we don't really notice, you know, oh, it's just this adorable, lovely country that makes great cars and electronics. And um, how could they have ever done what they did? But it's a very different story before um, before we get to it.
3: Yeah, I think, Emily, that's a helpful distinction between the kind of pragmatic decision to drop the bomb in wartime, which is one decision and then kind of the moral repercussions. And I think Nolan does a good job with grappling with it. It can be both things. You can have someone who says, yes, we have to do this because we're in war and there's no— pretty decisions in war, but also maybe there is some regret or guilt at kind of the Pandora's box that's opened here. Uh, I think that that was a helpful kind of dramatic. Uh, maybe it was purely dramatic, Christine, but. Uh, no, but
1: there there was a great scene. And again, I should go back. I got to go back and reread American Prometheus and see if it's in there. But there's a great scene that Nolan sets up between Oppenheimer and Truman and played by the wonderful uh, Gary. Uh, shoot, I just forgot his last name. Fantastic British actor. Oh uh and, Gary know, Oldman. Thank you, Gary Oldman. Love Gary Oldman. He um everyone should watch slow horses, by the way. He's in that. He's great. But he so he's playing Truman and and Oppenheimer is like, you know, doing his sort of, oh, but is it should we do this? I want to, you know, other scientists are worried. And Truman's like, yeah, look, that's not your that's not your call. This is a political decision. This is a strategic military decision. You're a scientist. Stay in your lane is basically what he's telling him. And I actually love that because I'm like, this was actually one of the big problems during the pandemic is that our public health professionals, our scientists suddenly thought themselves, although unelected, to be politicians, to make political decisions that impacted people and for which they had no actual accountability from the people who felt the weight of those decisions. So I that message which it, it, it's just it's one of many themes in the movie but it's a really important thing for people to remember and we have a it, the appeal to expertise is still very powerful even as we are are we have a lot of mistrust in many of our institutions but when a scientist says i'm going to just start deciding war policy be afraid be very afraid <laughs>
0: Gary Oldman has, uh, in addition now to playing Truman in Oppenheimer, has also played Churchill. So somebody really needs to <clears throat> write a He's one. So awesome. He needs to write. Someone needs to write a one-man show called Potsdam. Gary
2: Oldman plays. Right. He needs
1: to do Stalin. Is right. He so Stalin he could be it, <laughs>
0: the the, the uh, Potsdam Churchill. one-man show where Gary Oldman plays all three characters. Is, I would see that. I, I would, would absolutely that. see that as well. The, the the thing that is coming up in this version of this conversation is uh, kind of redirecting the, you know, this is how we got it wrong, not the decision to drop the bomb, but that uh, we were led to the decision to drop the bomb because our desire was for unconditional surrender on part of the Japanese. that To me, again, this is uh, historically illiterate because it suggests that there were conditions under which the Japanese were going to surrender. And I can't remember who I read over the weekend who I thought made a very good point, which is perhaps... Perhaps, if the Japanese had any idea what American occupation of the island was going to be like, that we were going to rebuild them into an economic powerhouse for a whole lot of geopolitical reasons, that we would even offshore some of our manufacturing to the country for that purpose, maybe, maybe they consider things differently. but. This happens so much in foreign policy conversations where you have a form of mirroring going on here, where what the Japanese were expecting our occupation of Japan to be like was to be like their occupation of China. And understandably, right. if they thought that they were going to have visited on them the things they visited on other people, I can understand why conditions aren't exactly going to be something that you're entertaining here. Uh, but it and is
2: not just official Japanese policy. I mean, Nanking was an official Japanese uh, but you look at things like Manila, those were soldiers in Manila. Those were not directed to do that. And so our just interpretation or their just interpretation of soldiers occupying their land. Um, the, the thought I, I was recommending yesterday, people were asking, well, is there some in, some work that you can watch that shows the Japanese experience during World War II? And there is, but most of those experiences don't really make clear that the population and the emperor and the military, we're all on the same page here. And we, we, as a, an American sort of historian, can't really yeah. get that concept. We don't, we don't think of ourselves as a single unit. The people who live in Nashville and the people who live in Washington, D.C., and the people who fight abroad are not a single unit, but for them, They were. And so occupation to them was whatever the government would do to me is what the soldier is going to do to me.
0: Yeah. To me, this is a cause to in the atrocities that come with war and from a war like that, that had gone on for as long as it did um, at a lot of not only people in the military died, but um, innocent men and women died more innocent men and women died when we dropped the bomb. Um, and again, this is a consequentialist argument to make to say that it saved lives, killing a lot of people in two cities in Japan saved a lot of lives. Uh, but that is almost certainly true that we saved a whole lot of lives for avoiding the invasion of the mainland. Uh, And to Christine's point, people should go read a book. Um, or at least go like there's there are plenty of great uh, films or series that have been made about the war and the war in the Pacific in particular, if you want to better understand these ideas. Um, but it's it, it's something to me that annoys me because it comes with a lot of these cheap moral pronouncements that, you know, was it horrifyingly awful to drop a bomb like that on two cities in Japan? Of course it was. The whole war was horrifyingly awful, which is why we spent so long afterwards that I think in many ways still are grappling with the idea of you know the 20th century which seemed to start with such a sense of promise how did it end up in this kind of just moral disaster uh, so to Christine's advice is a good one People should go out and they should read a book. They should also pick up a copy of Religion and Liberty, our magazine, which has Christine's essay in it as well as a whole lot of other really great essays that we encourage you to read. We'll put Christine's essay in the show notes today so you can check it out there if you haven't read it already. We encourage you to do so. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes right now for a link where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Noah. Thanks to Emily. Thanks to Christine Rosen. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.